0: Hi, this is Michelle with uh, Mom's Letting Go, and today I have a, my distant cousin Claire with me, who is a licensed psychologist from in, who works in Arizona, and Claire and I actually didn't even meet until recently, and not in person, but um, I did the Ancestry.com and noticed that Claire Corey was my distant cousin, and so I reached out to her and we found out, you know, that we were related on my mom's side, and it's been um, really fun getting to know her, and I invited her here today um, to speak to moms about the addiction crisis and um, just to kind of pour into us more knowledge that could help us understand what's going on with our addicted loved ones. So, Hi Claire, thanks for thanks for letting me pick your mind a little and um learn a little bit more about what you do. How are you doing
1: today? I am doing great and hello Michelle and thank you for having me. And, great. Um, I'm pleasure. happy to contribute whatever I can.
0: So tell us um what do you do on a daily basis? Like what what is your role?
1: So I am a psychologist and I I'm the associate director of a behavioral health clinic and outpatient clinic in Arizona, and I both manage staff and see clients. And I've been in the field for uh, almost thirty years now. Wow yeah. that that mm-hmm. must take a lot of passion. What it What does, motivates and some determination?
0: <laughs> yeah, to keep showing up. Right. It's uh... right. I'm sure that there have been times, well, maybe there haven't been. Have there been times in your career where you just felt so, you know, just down about the uh, crisis and addiction and the whole piece of that? I would say that, I'm sorry, go ahead. Has it been something that motivates you on an ongoing
1: basis or how do you stay committed to the profession? So uh, I think all of us in the profession have moments um, of feeling discouraged because there are a lot of challenges out there in the world, and sometimes or very often there aren't enough resources to meet those challenges, and, and people themselves are very complex. There are not easy answers to many of these challenges that face us in the mental health system and with substance use. But I love this field. I've never considered leaving it ever. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. you just get up and put your boots back on and go for another day. I do love the community where I work. And, and I think the relationships that I've developed with people over years are very sustaining. And um, that keeps me going. And I also love the staff I work with. I have a great team. So Oh, wow.
0: That is a blessing because it's not always the case.
1: Right. Was there yeah.
0: some was there something in your life though that triggered you to uh consider this profession?
1: Well, um so growing up on the other side of my family, not the side that you and I are related on, but on the other side of my family, my grandmother was mentally ill as were um others in her family, another sister. And so when when I was young, and she and my grandfather lived next door to us for most of my childhood um until i until actually she passed away during my senior year of high school oh. and I think being around um her pretty much every day and even though she wasn't as dreadfully mentally ill as she had been it you know, when when my mother was young, she really struggled with mental illness, and at a time when mental illness was not treated very well in our country, and she went through electroshock therapy uh, the old way, which was very difficult for people. She was often hospitalized in mental institutions, and hearing my mother's stories, the impact on my mother's life, early on, I had an interest in, in mental health issues, and, um, When I got to college, I intended to major in journalism, but (laughs) I took a psychology class, and it was all over from that point on. I was a psych major. (laughs) Wow. But I bet
0: you do a lot of writing in this field, don't you?
1: Well, I do not, um, not publication writing. I do a ton of writing in my field because we have so much documentation to do um but I'm not writing things for publication. Okay.
0: Well, I just noticed that when you post stuff on Facebook, um you you have a gift of writing because you always draw your readers into um your story and and what's going on in your life and um it's that I just think is a gift. So you still have that and I'm oh, sure
1: thank you <laughs>
0: Maybe one of these days you'll be able to use that uh gift in in different different ways but um well you mentioned you mentioned that your community is really different um than maybe others when it comes to surrounding addiction and families. Can you tell me a little bit about what you meant by that and um, what kind of community do you live in how do they embrace addic- addiction and families there where you live
1: well i think um it is somewhat different um and you know it's it's difficult for me to go into all the details because of um um i don't want to speak directly to where i work um sure um but i That's i You know, I do work in a Native American community, and so there are um, some of the challenges with addiction have... uh, Families are very familiar with that, but I also see um, that families will always stick together um, regardless of of challenges, you know, and so um, families are extremely tight-knit. So...
0: And do you feel that that helps the addict recover quick, quicker, or just more purposeful? Has that helped or hindered the the addict's uh, success in
1: recovery? <sighs> So, I guess what I want to say about that is, again, that there's no easy answers, and so it's not um, what may work for one family or community doesn't necessarily work with another family or community. And so, sometimes um, people sticking together no matter what, um, and for instance, never wanting to um, ask that person to leave the home no matter what sort of challenges may happen with theft or destruction of property. Sometimes in the end, that may be a good thing, but sometimes it's not a good thing. And and so I think most of my work is trying to help people find um, what works for them and their family and in their community. And that you know, different um, ethnic groups and different communities have different norms. You know about what what works for them. Interesting. Yeah, and I think that's
0: something that i can't say enough too because our son who's in recovery will say mom addiction and recovery is different for every single person and Mm -hmm. unfortunately it's not like you know one one uh way to get help or one way to recover might not work for one but will for another so it's very correct yeah and, wow, how complicated. I mean, I guess it's just mm-hmm. as complicated as all of us human beings are because none of us are alike, so it makes sense. Is there is there something that you could offer moms who might be listening today as far as, like, how how they can stay well? What would you recommend how they would stay well during their child um, if their child's in active addiction or recovery or... You know, um, what are some of the things that you might mention um, that they can do to help themselves stay well?
1: So I think that that's a really good question, and um i my heart goes out to mothers who have children, both adolescent and adult children, who are suffering from addiction. It's an incredibly um, difficult illness, recovery is difficult. And no mother ever wants to see her child go through that. Um, at the same time at the same time, it is important for mothers to realize that they will have to let go of their children, especially their adult children. That's very different than adolescents, but their adult right. children, and allow them to live their own lives and make their own choices. It's important for mothers and families to set boundaries and have limits around those choices. Um, But you can't live that child's life for them as much as you may want to. And as much as a person might want to surround their child in cotton or put them in a bubble, it's not possible. And so sometimes what I do tell mothers is that the best thing that you can do is tend to your own garden. You know, to take Mm -hmm. care of yourself, to realize that you have to let go and let God, as they say in 12-step. Right. And that means letting go of your adult child um, and finding a way forward, finding meaning in other places in life and other activities and other opportunities than being solely focused on that child and his or her addiction. Sure. Good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I know for myself, you know, how after a while you don't even realize how obsessive you become worrying about that child until yes. um, you know, some some moms will say, Oh my goodness, my my son, my daughter's in jail now. It's the first time I slept and I'm breathing like yeah. this out. You know, and then they're you know it makes them stop and think. Oh my goodness, I was in such bad shape before, and I didn't even realize it. Right. Um, one of the one of the things on my my Facebook group of moms, I asked um, when they joined, "What is your greatest fear?" And ninety nine percent of those moms said that they fear their child will die in an overdose, mm-hmm. um, or you know, just from Well, just the drugs and everything, the actions and everything that causes them to make poor and poor decisions, and it's poison in their bodies. And eventually, even if they don't overdose, they can die from all different kinds of complications. I see it all the time, Um, just from a general population point of view, not from a clinical point of view like yours, but the fear of of their children dying is crippling, and I often hear them say, well, I, you know, I just, they need help, and so they think that what they're doing is helping, but oftentimes on the flip side of that, mothers who are taking care of themselves will say, I refuse to be the one who gives them the money to for the final overdose, or something, so mm-hmm. they don't want to enable them thinking they're gonna be that, but how do you recommend they cope from this fear um is there any advice you can give them from like a therapeutic point of view as to how um how they can live with that fear what do you what do you um recommend
1: well y- I I guess I want to preface what I'm going to say with that it might be somewhat of a controversial statement. And so I I want to make clear that I really feel for moms in this situation. I am not a parent myself. I cannot imagine what it's like to have to live with that fear day in and day out. You know, this. as you mentioned, the crippling fear of the potential loss of your child. And so I do not want to minimize that in any way. And yet, this is a very real fear that people have to deal with all across the country. But if you look at it, one of the ways that I look at this is through the lens of how did our ancestors deal with this and Minority communities across the country have always lived with the fear of losing their children, you know, because of an, of an incident that could happen, say, with the police or, um, you know, different things have happened in minority communities that I think that families have lived with that fear of losing their child for, for generations, if not hundreds yeah. of years. But if you also look at how did women, how did mothers handle this in previous generations when their children and mostly their sons went off to war, you had to be able to live with that uncertainty every single day, whether you had a child, you know, a, a son usually fighting in World War One or in World War Two or in Korea or in Vietnam, somehow mothers and families found a way to cope with the uncertainties and that terror that they would be the ones to get the call or to get the letter or to get the visit at the door mm-hmm. that their child had been lost. And so I think throughout human history we have many, many examples and even not that distant history, again referencing minority communities, where people have faced these fears and have found ways to live and to cope and to move forward, even though it's very difficult. And so I, I tend to say, well, let's look at what our ancestors did.
0: Yeah.
1: Great. Um, yeah. And that's not easy, you know. I'm no. In no way am I suggesting that it's easy. I'm not no. suggesting that it was easy for um, mothers in 1942, you know. Yeah. Um, or I never anyone. thought
0: about it, but you're right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and so, but but they've done it, and they did it, and they found a way through it. And maybe part of that is reading. You know how how people coped with these very stressful, difficult situations. Um, looking to how minority communities have addressed these issues. You know, certainly found fam- that's nothing new for many of those families. And so I think the examples are all around us, but um, because we're, you know, almost as they say, like, you know, you get stuck in your own silos, I think we have to reach out outside of the world of addiction and look at how other communities have handled these fears. And then there's also the cancer community. And so, obviously, as you know, I'm a cancer survivor myself, and, um, you know, there are many... Um, you know mothers whose children have cancer both minor children and and grown children and in many cases those cancers are very serious and what we know is that not all of the cancers can be cured or healed right and so mothers have lost their children how have those mothers coped how have they found a way to live with that crippling fear day in and day out and 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 many of them have. And so I think it's sort of reaching across um, those lines to the other communities who face these fears to find ways that, that might work, you know, for I your own that. family. I
0: Man. love that idea. Yeah, because the feeling, the the stories are different, but the mother's uh, grief is, is the same. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And that's what I find in the support group, too, is... Um, Moms are so surprised, oh my goodness, she sounds just like me she She over there is worried about the same things I am and and that feeling of I'm not alone, so other people have gone through this, and this is how they did it and I love that you brought that up because what I can do then is you know do some digging and studies and um, bring stories to share about um moms who have overcome this and how how they were able to do it and what helped them. And again, it's it's so personal, isn't it? Because it's just like with every one of our, your patients and every one of my moms, how people cope and what they do. Everybody's different and unique.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Um, one of the, um, you know, it, it with it, this week on my Facebook too, I did a a little Facebook Live on compassion fatigue because sometimes moms get caught up in, you know, just being exhausted from caring almost too much. Um, And boundaries is one of those things that can help us stay well Um, and being able to set those limits and, and keep our boundaries and first identify those. Um, And I always encourage moms to write them down and talk to their family and spouse and so on um, about that um, so that everybody's on the same page. But um, are there any books or anything that you can recommend moms study on boundaries? For some reason that's, that's a very difficult thing for a lot of moms.
1: So, I, I there's not a particular book of course you know Melody Beattie is you know plague yeah. bearer in in the field on codependency and issues like that but I you know I think that mothers by and large almost you know with very few exceptions mothers at their deepest core of their being are about caring and about wanting to be there for their children and to raise their children and to love their children. And so it is very difficult to turn that off, if not impossible, you know. And I'm not right. suggesting that somebody entirely turn that off. But I think what happens is that when people do set boundaries, they tend to feel somewhat guilty or like as though mm-hmm. they're letting their children down somehow because yep. they're actually you know, putting up a stop sign and saying enough is enough. But I think we have to look at boundaries as a form of caring, you know, because, you know, very often somebody struggling with addiction does not have those internal boundaries. They're not able to get themselves under control. And so even if they may fight it, it can actually be helpful if somebody else is setting up those boundaries because at least they know that there is a stop sign out there somewhere. And so my recommendation is to detach with love. Of course, that's much easier said than done. That's not easy to do. Yeah. And and to also realize that similar to cancer treatment, so I, I said this for years before I ever had cancer, Um, Cancer treatment is very difficult. It often makes people very sick. You know, you you feel like crap. Um, It, you know, derails you from your life. But in order for you to survive, you have to make these sacrifices, you know, and and undergo some very difficult treatments in order to survive. And the same thing is true with substance abuse and, and treatment and boundaries, that sometimes you have to make some very difficult decisions. You have to undergo some uncomfortable um, procedures. You you have to live with discomfort well, in order to survive. I love and that so,
0: analogy. Yes.
1: Yeah, and yes. so I guess one of the things I would say to people is that even though it may feel like you're having to set aside some of your natural caring instinct that that may be required in order to help a person survive and that means setting limits and having healthy boundaries right and right. and and that that discomfort that that a person may feel as a parent or that discomfort that that may cause in their adult child who is struggling with addiction is not all that dis- different from a discomfort that somebody's experiencing who's going through cancer treatment but with the understanding that this is going to make me better in the long run. And right. so I guess my recommendation is to remember that, that this can help possibly make you better in the long run. However, just like cancer, there's no guarantees. Right. right. There's no guarantees that it's going to work, that a person is going to be healed. You you know, and in, in terms of the treatment that I did, you throw everything you got at it and you hope for the best. You know, I got lucky. Not everybody does. And the same is true with addiction. You want to give it your best possible shot. It's not a guarantee of success, but hopefully it will be enough to carry, you know, you over to the other side and help support that person in getting into recovery and making really good choices about their recovery. Great. I love that. Very good.
0: Um, One of the things... I wanted to ask you and I, and maybe you don't even have this but I wondered if you have a, a story of of maybe how a mom has changed the way she responds to her addicted loved one through setting boundaries through through detaching with love something where can, can you do you have a story where a mom changed that and then her Addicted son or daughter um, was able to um, realize that they had to seek a better life, and Mm -hmm. finally,
1: um, eventually,
0: was brought into recovery. Do you have any of those stories? Yeah,
1: yeah, and I and I will say this: you know, of the people I know who are in really solid, good recovery. They had family members who set limits and and had boundaries with them in a way that really pushed them to change their behavior. It doesn't work for everybody. Right. And so every parent who set limits or had boundaries does not have, you know, necessarily the outcome that they want in terms of that child achieving sobriety and recovery. But of the people I know who are in recovery... Everybody that I can think of had family who did set limits and boundaries like that. So I'm thinking a couple years ago we did um, a a little community event where we had um, a man who's now in his 40s who was addicted, and he was addicted to methamphetamine and alcohol, and do a community presentation along with his mother (laughs) to talk about their experiences of his addiction. And it was a marvelous event because she talked about how in the beginning she didn't want to believe that he was addicted. And he said, well, of course, plus I was hiding it from you. You know, I didn't want you to know either. And she Uh said, like many parents, I didn't want to believe that that was my son. You know, I I, so she tried to rationalize it away, the behaviors that she noticed, and and think that they were something else, and that no, he couldn't possibly be addicted. And and then at one point during this little, you know, panel discussion we were having, she said, "And you know, he was going to work every day." And he piped up and said, "Mom, I told you I was going to work every day. I wasn't going to work every day." Wow. And so eventually, what happened was that she did you know come to realize that he was struggling with addiction and I can't remember all of the events that led to her you know realizing this and um and she did pull the family together and they told him you must get treatment and we will not allow you to remain in this house unless you do and at that point he was very paranoid um to the point where he'd actually hired a private detective because he was very paranoid on methamphetamine Mm. Um, But he did agree to get treatment, and treatment was accessible, which is also very important. He did go to treatment. He completed an inpatient rehab program. He came out of treatment. Um, He was sober for a while. He relapsed, and Mm. then he became sober again, and he has now been sober almost 14 years. Wow. So he is a great example of that, but it's, you know, what ultimately pushed him into rehab was pressure from his family
0: family, and, sure. um,
1: and, and having you know those limits and boundaries. So, yeah, so that's one story. It, uh, and I've had uh, another woman in long-term recovery tell me that she came home one day and found all of her possessions out in the yard, and, and that's what changed it for her. And she did go to rehab. She got sober, and she's been sober ever since, more than 20 years now. Wow. So, things like that, yeah. Their,
0: mm-hmm. It's their breaking point. And their breaking point is different for everybody. I hate when people yeah. say, you know, they're, they're bottom. Um, because I think some of them are so at the rock bottom and they still don't believe that they're, that they can change their life around. They're just not, there's no hope. They have no hope in themselves turning it around, so it doesn't, they just feel about them every day, it sounds like, for some of them, um, and maybe those are the the ones who have tried recovery, but they weren't, um, the rehab centers maybe they attended just weren't um, of a high enough caliber, maybe. maybe, that's not the word, but they weren't, they didn't, they didn't maybe treat the mental disorder with the addiction or something. There was something missing. And so I know our um, daughter-in-law initially, her family had sent her to like a Scientology type of um, recovery center for six months or five months. And they they just didn't bring a spiritual side to her recovery, they did it by intimidation and Mm -hmm. locked them in rooms, and it was horrific. And so when she thought of going back into recovery, the only place she knew was this horrible place. And um, so she was very reluctant to go. And once we finally got her there and she was into the program, she had never ever in her life experienced anything so loving um and spiritual because she had been raised with God in her life so um it was it was just her reluctance to go was because of an experience a previous experience but um i don't know it is some for some people they just can't envision their life being um ever being able to turn it around. So when you, when you hear it, it, and you deal, like you just talked about that story of that man who relapsed, when, when you see patients relapse, what do you, what's the overall reason for the relapse in that? And, um, and maybe there's not just one, but could you speak into that just a little bit?
1: Sure, and relapse is complicated. So, as you mentioned, it's it's not just one thing that leads to relapse. Mm-hmm. And so, I do want to say, you know, and and while I could go down the rabbit hole with it, um, you know, rehab centers, there's no perfect place, there's no perfect program, um, but there there is help, and 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 my hope would be that help would be more accessible for people. However, merely completing inpatient treatment is no guarantee that a person will remain right. sober in recovery. That's only the first step.
0: Yep. And nice. so
1: um, when you talk about relapse, there's a lot of things that can happen. And one thing that happens is that people get cocky very quickly. They And, and I can't blame them. You know, it's sort of like... Um, when you decide to go on a diet and you lose a bunch of weight and you think, wow, you know, excited. I, yeah, yeah I this is great. That. I'm at my normal weight. And so, hey, I can start adding back in whatever, you know, again, and pretty soon yeah. you're back up at the at your original weight that you were unhappy with, right? And right. so we, we all want to, you know, um I mean, to be blunt, we all want a quick path to success. I mean, (laughs) you know, that would be nice and easy, right? And so if I (laughs) can just go into rehab for 30 days or 45 days and come out with my life change, hey, that's great. But recovery is so much more than that. And, And recovery means, at a fundamental level, changing your thinking. And... I don't think any of us change our thinking over the course of 30, 45, or 60 days. And I will say this, that all relapse begins with thinking somewhere. Nobody relapses without having thought about it first. So on some level, it begins you know, within the mind. Now, there's many right. complicating factors to that, and one of the major complicating factors are, are cravings. And cravings for opiates and methamphetamine can be incredibly intense. I've Mm. never used those substances, so I do not know what it's like personally, but I know what people have told me over the years. Mm. And um, I like chocolate. And if you leave a chocolate cake in my office all day, I'm going to eat that cake at some point along the way. But right. a chocolate craving is sort of a normal human craving. Um, we, you know, in terms of, of our brain development and um, and what we experience, you know, in terms of neurotransmitters and dopamine, you know, chocolate cake is a pretty normal craving that all of us humans experience, right? Or, or right. a craving for food or something like that, a particular food. Craving for drugs is like... The only way that I know to describe it, it's like the elevator went up to the top floor and then blew out the building, you know, and soared high into the sky. It's difficult for those of us who have not experienced those substances to understand what those cravings are like because it's like the elevator blowing out the top of the building. And Mm -hmm. so cravings can be very intense, and people find that they're not able to cope with those cravings. And so um, relapse happens often. We also see with the way that the brain heals from methamphetamine addiction in particular that the highest risk of relapse comes at six to nine months in recovery. And by six to nine months in recovery, people are feeling pretty darn good about themselves and they're feeling that they've got this licked. But it is a function of how the brain heals from the damage caused by the substance such that people will start to feel more irritable again. Maybe even some paranoia will come back. People will feel angry. Mm -hmm. We call it hitting the wall. And when people hit the wall, they often feel demoralized, and that's when relapse often happens. But by then, they've been sober six to nine months, maybe the better part of a year, Their families are thinking, hey, they've got this thing under control. They're thinking that they've got this thing under control, and it's demoralizing for everybody when that relapse happens. And so one of the things we do try to do is to educate um, people and their families about this so that they're prepared and that they know that it's going to be coming down the road. Um, yes. lots of other things contribute to relapse, you know, mm-hmm. stress, even things like holidays. We've got Christmas coming mm-hmm. up next week, expectations, yeah. all of those things. Yeah. One of the um, best substance abuse counselors I ever worked with who's now retired had said to me repeatedly over the years, you know, you've got to do something for your recovery every single day. And right. so um, people who who get into recovery who get a little bit overconfident, a little bit cocky, thinking that they've got it licked, will often let that go and forget that you've got to do something for your recovery every day. Right. And so, you you know, that is sort of a bedrock thing. Mm. If okay. you want to stay in recovery, you've got to do something for your recovery every day.
0: Okay. Good, good, good. Great advice. Oh, yeah. And I've actually heard... Ryan, you know, he's a little more than 10 months now, and um, he said, we feel confident in our sobriety right now, like we're looking for, you know, the next phase of, they're still living in sober living, but they're looking toward their next. Phase of life in, I look at it like elementary, middle school, high school, college. You know, we're right. yeah. thinking about college here, but, um, yeah, but it so it's good. It's good to know that, um, because their their drug of choice was methamphetamine, so it's good yeah. to know that, um, you know, just I, I I've heard and I I tell moms this because I've heard. Relapse is a part of recovery, and oftentimes it it happens when um, they're still in elementary school and they're trying to do college. It's like they're trying to do too much too soon and Mm -hmm. um, thinking they're going to be able to cope. Just like you said, they get a little confident in their um, sobriety and think they can tackle it and then... um, you know, they fall back or they hit the wall or whatever, but I always try to just encourage, you know, moms Well just, they know the plan, they know how, how it works, just encourage them to get back in it, right?
1: Right, um, exactly, and it, it's um, relapse isn't the end of the world, and i I do see that sometimes people will take on too much too soon because they've found something that works for them and they'll want to then share that with everyone else, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but trying to sort of you know get your whole community into recovery when you know you're not you haven't even had a year in sobriety yourself is often a recipe for failure because um people need more time for their own right. healing. And that's yeah. healing emotionally, but it's also healing at the level of the brain. You know, it's, with the power of these substances, they're incredibly yeah. powerful, um, you know, mixes of chemicals that are going in their body, and they change your brain. And right. I will say, you know, I went through a different powerful mix of chemicals entering my body, which was 16 rounds of chemotherapy, and I'm oh. two years out, and I'm still dealing with chemo brain. You know, my brain was impacted right. by that. And sure. similarly, you know, um, mm. you know, I'm I'm two years out and don't have cancer at this point. But similarly, people who are dealing with addiction may be a couple of years into recovery, but they're still dealing with the healing at the level of the brain. And oh. and it just takes time.
0: It takes time. Um. Thank you for mentioning that because I. I often feel like the family, especially, gets really impatient, and we think, "Well, just quit doing it and get on with your life." But um, mm-hmm. for the people that say that, I just, I just kind of nod because obviously they don't have um, very much knowledge about um, what it takes and what it what it does, like you said, to the brain. So, well, I, I'm just going to wrap this up here because I know you have um, a commitment this evening, and I really appreciate um, you taking this much time with us and sharing some of this. I, I just came up with all these different topics I could talk to you about, so maybe we'll have you back <laughs> on again. But um, is there any, are there any last words you want to just um, say to any mom out there who's got an addicted loved one?
1: You know, I will say, as as I think most of the mothers know at this point, that they are not alone. Sometimes yeah. it may feel like they're alone, but they're not alone. There are thousands of mothers, you know, millions of mothers dealing with this across our country and, and across the planet. They are not alone. And I know how incredibly difficult it can be from, again, not being a parent, but from an outsider perspective. I have spent a lot of time with mothers who I have seen give their whole heart and soul and have spent a great deal of time and energy and, um, you know, have given their all to help their children with addiction. And I just, I, I want to say that it's okay and even healthy and may help your children to step back, you know, and focus on your own life and tend to your own garden. And when you've done everything that you can, let go and let God. Thank you. Thank
0: you. That's such a great wrap-up. Thanks again. And I am going to quit recording.